Welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword, where we are certified 100% USDA inspected prime nerd. I'm Dave, here with my co-host Chris, and we're ready to bring you another episode filled with nerd goodness. Today, we'll be talking about some of our guilty pleasures, the nerdy stuff that's like chicken soup for our souls. First, though, we've got some nerd news. Chris, what's up? Well, we got a hint of this, Dave, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Wonder Woman 1984 being released to HBO Max simultaneously with the theatrical release onto HBO Max. But uh, Warner Brothers has gone a step further, and it's quite a giant leap. It is going to release all of its new 2021 movies simultaneously on HBO Max alongside a theatrical release. Um, this is this is a momentous uh, decision by Warner Brothers. Um, films like The Little Things, Judas and the Black Messiah, Tom and Jerry, Godzilla vs. Kong, Mortal Kombat, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, In the Heights, Space Jam, A New Legacy, The Suicide Squad, Reminiscence, Malignant, Dune, The Many Saints of Newark, King Richard, Cry Macho, and The Matrix 4 are all going to be released digitally at the same time of their theatrical release. So this is, I mean, it's insane. Um, but, uh, this is not like an easy decision for anybody involved. A lot of people are going to be losing money. Um, this could be the death knell for, uh, movie theaters across the world. But, um, you know, at the same time, these companies are going to be losing quite a bit as well. So they're trying to make the best of it because COVID is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, so you're going to be losing money anyway, so you might as well try to evolve and get some kind of growth out of this in the long term. Um, it, what will be probably the most interesting thing to see going forward is what other companies, what other big production studios do after this. What are the ripple effects when, uh, (laughs) what's going to happen with, you know, Black Widow, what's going to happen, uh, with other uh, releases from Disney and its subsidiaries, what are other big, you know, production companies going to do in the wake of this? Because this is a momentous step and it'll be interesting to see uh, where we go from here. Yeah, you know, this is absolutely a paradigm shift in the distribution of movies. I'm frankly not sure how to feel about it. You know, on the one hand, the pandemic has made theaters pretty much a non-starter for many people, myself included, even with distancing and masks. I'm just not ready to risk the health of my family for something as, well, trivial as a Hollywood blockbuster. So this seems like a viable alternative. Warner has several movies coming next year that I cannot wait to see, including Godzilla vs. Kong, Dune, and of course James Gunn's Suicide Squad. On the other hand, though, you know, I love theaters. I always have, even as a kid. There's something special about the communal experience of watching movies in a large group, of of feeding on audience reactions, the smell, the sights, the giant screen. Many small theaters have already died during this pandemic, including a a local second-run theater that was one of my all-time favorites to catch older movies on the big screen. So, you know, this is good news for the consumer uh, as far as access to movies is concerned. But is it good news for those who hope to enjoy the theater experience again once the pandemic is under control? I don't know. If Warner manages to match its profits with HBO Max releases, this could signal the end of an era. I would hate to see movie theaters go the way of the Dodo. And you know that other studios will be watching very carefully how this works out for Warner. And if it is successful, 
other studios will follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. And and just it's just going to be fascinating to watch and develop, um, you know, thinking, you know, a year or two or three down the road, will we have a, a theater revival? Because um, I, I tend to think that way because it it is such a popular thing for for individuals like us who who enjoy going in groups and and having that. So once you know, once we get a handle on this, and 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 hopefully you know, it, it can have some type of resurgence. But it's just going to be really really interesting to watch over the next months and years uh, of what's going to happen. You know, I find it also really difficult to believe that Warner is going to be able to match box office receipts uh, that they would have gotten if these movies, you know, were in theaters. And I know, you know, technically they're going to be in theaters as well, but there's a pretty large uh, chunk of the population that is not willing to go to the movies right now. I can't imagine that this is going to be as profitable for them. Uh, the amount of HBO Max subscriptions that they would have to sell to get anywhere near the box office receipts, something like Wonder Woman could pull. I, I will be watching this very carefully. I'm very curious to see how this is going to affect their bottom line and if it's worth it for them in the long run financially. Another interesting point that was brought up in several articles is um, it, is Warner has not been able to reach an agreement with Roku who is who is um, you know the largest you know streaming device holder? So so uh, HBO Max is not offered on a Roku device right now, um, you know. So it's going to be interesting to see watch that develop, and the streaming wars um, over the past year or two have already been you know pretty intense. Uh, I think that's another aspect going forward that's going to be interesting to watch how. How is this going to tip the scales, if at all, when it comes to uh, the number of HBO Max subscribers? You know, Netflix um, is the only streaming service, in in my knowledge, to my knowledge, that limits screens, um, the number of screens that you can watch at the same time. And they're also raising their prices. Um, the, the maximum, you know, four screens at a time for Netflix uh, is up to seventeen ninety nine a month, and that's up over HBO Max, which has no limit to screens. Um, you still have Disney Plus, which is still at six ninety nine, twelve ninety nine if you bundle. So it's just going to be really fascinating to watch not only the theater situation but the streaming wars going forward as well. I could definitely see Netflix starting to run into a little bit of trouble. There's definitely a market saturation happening right now with streaming services. And I'm not exactly 100% sure Netflix is still the best game in town. I mean, sure, uh, for a lot of content, you, you have to subscribe to multiple streaming services. But the value of something like Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN Plus for $12.99 versus $17.99 for something like Netflix. Um, and Netflix is regrettable tendency of canceling its original series very, very quickly. Um, I think Netflix might start running into a little bit of problems with their consistent price raising and, and sort of their, their business decisions as far as, you know, how, how they handle cancellations of their series and the like. This could be an episode in and of itself. And I think we've hinted at it before, but you know, Netflix had like how many years of a head start and to see them scrambling like this is, is really wild to see. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we definitely uh, should sit down at some point and have a little bit of a discussion about streaming services and how they compare and, you know, where is the best bang for your buck? Um, There's definitely a discussion to be had there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dave, you're headed to the realm of video games. Uh, What do you have for us? Oh, I I, I love me some video games. So 
BioWare is a developer that I really like to talk about a little bit. Uh, they, they've been one heck of a developer over the years. They've produced classics like the Mass Effect trilogy, the Dragon Age series, and, and of course, the venerable Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic games. In recent years, though, the company had to deal with some setbacks. Uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, the fourth game in the series, was poorly received, um, and BioWare's online cooperative action RPG Anthem has struggled to make an impact. And now fans are worried there's more trouble ahead for BioWare. Kotaku reports that Casey Hudson, the creative director of the Mass Effect series and studio manager, is leaving BioWare. Uh, On a blog post, he announced that, and I quote, after nearly 20 years of work at BioWare, I've made a decision to retire from the studio and make way for the next generation of studio leaders. At the same time, Dragon Age executive producer Mark Dara also is leaving the company. Now, fans are naturally worried about the future of both of BioWare's flagship franchises. There's reportedly a new Dragon Age uh, game currently in development, and BioWare hopes to rekindle interest in Mass Effect by developing a remaster of its original trilogy. Both franchises now have lost key personnel at a critical juncture. You know, I'm always in a constant state of worry for game development studios owned by Electronic Arts. They've kind of become famous as a company that purchases studios, milks them dry, and then kills them. Admittedly, BioWare has avoided uh, this fate for years since they were purchased in 2007. But it seems like in EA's eyes, you're only ever really as good as your last big hit. And BioWare hasn't really had one of those in a hot second. They need a hit. And, And so... Dragon Age, the next Dragon Age game, and this this Mass Effect remaster are critical. Uh, I'd hate for a great developer like BioWare to go the way of of developers like Origin or Bullfrog or or Visceral, for crying out loud, Maxis, Mythic, or even Pandemic. Great developers bought, milked, and killed by Electronic Arts. So, yeah, I think I share the concerns a lot of fans have for what's going on at BioWare right now. It's a very critical time in in this developer's life, and losing staff that has been so important to past success is is deeply troubling. So I don't have any experience with with any of these games, but I I do know uh, what happens you know when when games are taken over by EA. Look no further than the Star Wars Battlefront games uh, for. Uh, some some senseless murder, uh, um, particularly with the second one. It was it was quite awful, um, and they did a lot to try and bounce back from that and and rebounded quite nicely. But um, it, the the original Star Wars Battlefront games um, are are some of the best Star Wars games. Period. They're unparalleled. Um, it's it's really just you hate to see it. Like. Um, and it's a, such a meme worthy thing to make fun of EA, but it's true. Like even um, my, most of my exposure to EA's uh, games are, are basically like Madden and, and other sports related games. But um, it's, it's really hard to see how they have basically a monopoly when it comes to NFL related games, how they can just continue to dwindle and, uh, and just continue to put out worse and worse games every year. I haven't bought a Madden game in years. Um, 
you know, other than what I get with EA Access because it's just consistently a worse and worse product every year. I don't know what's going on in the water over at EA, but it's not good. Yeah, I think they've been repeatedly voted like worst company in, in the United States or something like that. Some of their business practices are extremely questionable, um, but they do gobble up developers like crazy and they have a horrible history of, of killing those developers once they get you know what they can out of them or what they perceive they can get out of them. And and Bioware has such a such a great pedigree and such a great history of producing really great, particularly RPG games. Um, I'm just worried about them. Yeah, I'm I'm late to the game um, on Kotor as well. I just bought it for ten bucks on my iPad, so I'm I'm going through that for the first time um, and, and enjoying it too. So um, you know, this is this is going to be really interesting to watch it develop. A, uh, as the days and months come yeah absolutely all right let's take a quick break when we come back guilty nerd pleasures still g-rated sorry to disappoint don't go anywhere all right we're back and today, for our big byword, big talk, we are talking nerd guilty pleasures. This is the stuff we keep coming back to time and time again. It's the balm for our soul, our bridge over troubled waters. What better to talk about in 2020, the year we all need some balm, or preferably a vaccine? Chris, what's the chicken soup for your nerdy soul? Well, this this whole episode idea kind of spawned of a, a conversation that, you know, Thanksgiving has come and passed and, and we're getting to head it, getting ready to head into the holiday season or we're, we may be already there. And, and this year, um, unlike any other, it just doesn't feel right. Um, when you want to think about things that you're thankful for or things that you want to celebrate, it just feels like, you know, a really, really weird year. So I wanted to focus we wanted to focus on things that make us feel good and uh, that make us grateful and, and put us in a good spirit. And the first thing that comes to my mind is Spider-Man comics. You know, I've read every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. I've read every issue of Spectacular Spider-Man, despite my late start when it came to reading comics. I just gobbled them up. I've read every issue of um, Ultimate Spider-Man. Like, it just makes me feel good. Um, there's not just a sense of nostalgia, but a sense of, you know, being like I'm at home when I open a Spider-Man comic or I read one digitally, I just feel at home. Um, and a lot of that has to do with um, a lot of, you know, social media friends that I've made over the years. And that's my hashtag drunk Pete squad. And what hashtag drunk Pete is, is every Saturday night um, we get together at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern and we have, you know, a calendar, we have a Google calendar, you know, that are, you know, related topics. Like for example, last night we read, um, there's a big snowstorm coming up in, in the Northeast. Um, and so we read uh, Amazing Spider-Man 700.1. That was about like the big blizzard and snowstorm and knocked out all the power. So it's like relevant issues. When it comes to Halloween, we read like Hobgoblin or Demogoblin stories. Or when it comes to Christmas, we read Christmas-related issues. Um, so it's basically you just live tweet reading a comic book. And it's just like a sense of community, something we bond over. We all love Spider-Man. He's our favorite superhero. Um, but even aside from that, um, you know, anytime that I, you know, I've had a rough day at work or my kids are driving me nuts, I just open up 
um, a comic book or, you know, grab my Marvel Unlimited and, and read digitally a Spider-Man book. And it, it doesn't really even matter where. It doesn't matter the quality of the storyline. You know, I've been through it all. I've been through the Clone Saga. I've been through One More Day. I've been through Sins Past, Sins Revisited, all of that stuff. But it doesn't matter if there's a dip in quality, uh, you know, on the creative team or the storyline or the plot doesn't make sense. There's just something therapeutic about the ethos of who Peter Parker is for me. Um, I said this on our very first episode, I got my sense of morality, not just from comic books, but specifically the Parker family, um, Uncle Ben and, and Peter himself. Everything feels right in the world when I turn the page and I see that opening splash page of Spider-Man in the costume swinging above New York City, uh, the skyline and that inner, inner monologue that is, is so perfect for Peter. Um, my personal go to's and favorites are Ultimate Spider Man. I've sang its praises time and again. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley. I love the J. Michael Straczynski run with JRJR, John Romita Jr. Those are some of my favorite comics ever. Um, I also like Sensational Spider Man. So that's like a B or a C title that not a lot of people have read. But Sensational Spider Man, that's a good one. We know about the annual that we love so much um, to have and to hold, but. But that whole run of Sensational Spider-Man is really, really good. Uh, Paul Jenkins' Spectacular Spider-Man I've talked about before. Of course, you have the Lee Ramita and Lee Ditko issues. Renew Your Vows, I've sung its praise it as well. And anything that Jerry Conway does. Um, the other great thing about reading a Spider-Man comic is I don't have to worry about continuity. You know I love my Merry Mutants and the X-Men, but continuity is quite a mess, especially when you have a group book. Um uh, you know, especially with my history of having read all the main titles, you know, reading a book again, uh, something I've read before, it, it's okay. And I don't have to worry about it. It, it feels like home to me. So Spider-Man comics is one of my go-tos. And, you know, I totally understand that. I love Spidey as well, although I've not read nearly as many of the comics as you have. I've got a big challenge ahead of me just trying to catch up. But as far as Spidey goes, I have one run in particular that I love to revisit, and that's Bendis' Ultimate Spider-Man. I've read the whole thing probably four times at this point, and I still love it. It's one of the best representations of the character, probably ever, at least to me. But yeah, I see where you're coming from. Spidey's the best, after all. Yeah, and it. Uh, what I particularly love about Ultimate Spidey is like those were... For me, like the years that I was around that age group or coming up to that age group. And so I could totally relate to that. What I was feeling like in 2001, feeling awkward and out of date. And my hair was a terrible haircut, just like Peter's was, that awkward bowl cut. So I totally relate to that. And and I, could, I feel so seen every time I read, especially those first few arcs of, of Ultimate Spidey. Now, Dave, you are headed to the world of Nintendo. What is your first guilty pleasure? You know, I, we say guilty pleasures, but I certainly don't feel guilty about any of this. When I was a kid, I was a Nintendo fanboy, almost by default. Growing up in Germany, I knew nobody who had a Sega console, so I was a Nintendo guy. I vividly remember playing my Nintendo Entertainment System and my Super Nintendo for countless hours. And one day, I went to a local toy store, and they were giving away 10-minute promotional VHS tapes. VHS tapes. Oh, I'm showing my age. For Nintendo's <laughs> newest console, the Nintendo 64. And I picked up one of these VHS tapes and immediately fell in love. I probably watched that tape 200 or 300 times before I finally laid my hands on an N64. Today, I know the N64 has a bit of an odd reputation among gamers. 
Sticking with cartridges made the N64 more difficult to develop games for than the new CD-based PlayStation. Nintendo and Square's relationship soured, so Final Fantasy moved to the new system. Many gamers point out that early 3D, as represented by the N64, is ugly and doesn't hold up. But here's the truth. I still have an N64, and I still play it. There are several games that keep dragging me back to the system. You know, call it nostalgia, but there's one game above all the rest, and that's The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. This game was, for the time, a revelation. It was a giant adventure that boldly took Zelda into the third dimension. I played this game to death, seeking every secret, every collectible, every skull tola, every single thing that I could do in this game I did. And then I did it again. And, and then I did it again. The game totally holds up for me. I still play it all the time. I love uh, the ocarina functionality of playing music in the game. I adore the time travel between the two different eras. The dungeons are perfectly designed, except that darned water temple. The music is incredible. The gameplay is fantastic. I replay this game probably about once per year, and I always return to my N64 to do so. I know there was a sort of a remaster re-release for the 3DS, and it's, it's pretty, I will freely admit that. But to scratch that Ocarina of Time itch, it is always me on the original hardware with that three-pronged N64 controller going to town on my all-time favorite video game. Man, uh, this is a deep cut for me. It is the one, the N64 is the one system that I did not have that I desperately wanted growing up as a kid. Like I would go to my cousin's house. I would go to the the YMCA after school program and I would just like straight up elbow kids just to get a chance to play Super Smash Bros. Like I loved the N64 and for one reason or another, never got one. I had a PlayStation um, and, and that, you know, was great and everything but the n64 is the one that i wanted so bad so i think i may have to hit up a used game store uh, legend of zelda my experience with that particular you know franchise is quite limited to super smash brothers um but uh, i've always like admired it from afar you know i'm a big fantasy fan so like the whole vibe is right up my you know alley so i i definitely want to to go find an n64 and and dive into this one and it's really strange because today obviously uh you people would say hey there's so many better um zelda games you know breath of the wild in particular is, is sort of the the game of the moment and it is a fantastic game i've played it uh, actually a couple of times through and i've really enjoyed it as well but there's just something about ocarina of time that just keeps coming keeps me coming back over and over again now, Chris, what is next on your list for quote-unquote guilty pleasures? Space. The final frontier. Now, I love Star Trek, man. Star Trek is one of my go-to therapeutic things. Um, I usually put it on every night on the television to help me fall asleep, to challenge me um, intellectually, to challenge me mentally. Um Star Trek increasingly more than Star Wars, which is wild because I've been a Star Wars fan since I was a little kid. It's one of the few nerdy experiences I shared with my dad. Um, my dad, you know, is an auto mechanic, you know, very much blue collar, 
he and I didn't have a lot of common, but Star Wars was one of the things that he got me into. So I, you know, I've had Star Wars in my life since I was very, very young. But, um, you know, I just got into Star Trek, you know, just within like the last five or six years. But it is it has completely converted me um, to lean Star Trek over Star Wars, which would you know, if you would have told me that when I was a, a 10, 11 year old kid, I would have never believed you. Um, it's because of those things. It challenges me mentally. It challenges me intellectually. I also love that it's basically like a detective noir in space. Like it's so episodic and, and, you know, especially, you know, with, um, you know, the original series, next generation and, and DS nine, it, it feels like a detective show in, in its nature, the flow of the episode, you know, right down to the minutes, you know, played out. Um, there's also for me, I, I typically watch the original series at night um, to, to make me feel good. Um, there's something aesthetically pleasing about the original series um, right down to the sounds that boat swing whistle that it, it just makes me feel good. The communicator beeps. My text message beep every time I get a text message on my phone is the OG communicator. So I feel like I'm Captain Kirk every time somebody just texts me, hey, what do you want for dinner? Um, I also love that a starship crew, um, you know, is basically like a family. And and they you watch them grow over the years. Um, and that's a lot more impactful than than a film franchise. Um, you know, particularly with the next generation, you had a, a really rough start with season one and it's much maligned and it's made fun of quite a bit. Um, you know, and then the second season you have, you know, Dr. Pulaski coming in it, instead of Dr. Crusher and then Dr. Crusher coming back. And then, you know, the meme worthy uh, Wesley and, and, and all of that. So like just watching them grow over those seven seasons and then into the films, um, is just fascinating. And then, um, you know, I'm enjoying Deep Space Nine for the first time. And and what I absolutely just love about Deep Space Nine is it just fully embraces the weirdness of sci-fi. I feel like Star Wars um, increasingly just tries to be like super cool. And, you know, sometimes that works, but sometimes I just want to be weird. I want to be a nerd. And, and what I always love about Star Trek through and through it is unapologetically nerdy it does not apologize for its nerdiness and, and i just love that um and i've started to prefer the hard sci-fi over um the soft sci-fi you know um you know i i just love me some star trek man you know uh, we've discussed our love of uh, trek a few times on this show and i can wholeheartedly agree that watching trek is like chicken soup for the soul my most revisited uh, are probably the original series and DS9. I love the original uh, 60s production values and all because I really enjoy 60s sci-fi period. Uh, I have a pretty big collection of uh, science fiction novels and short stories from the 1960s as well. There was just something in the air uh, at that time that really made science fiction writers you know, go for broke. Um, Deep Space Nine to me is the pinnacle of Trek. To me, I, I don't think there has been a Star Trek show that's been better than Deep Space Nine. Putting the ideals of the Federation in a situation where they are not the dominant philosophy, exploring faith and politics, the aftermath of war and tragedy in the form of the planet Bajor, and then going there and actually showing a war for the first time in a Star Trek series. You know, it's just, it's a great, great show. I've watched the entirety of Deep Space Nine probably three or four times now, and I still get the urge to go through it again. I feel like I'm constantly peeling back new layers. And that really is 
the best thing I think you can say about Star Trek is that you can always go back to it. Um, and depending on where you are in your life or what's going on in the world at that time, you will always find a, a new angle to look at the stories and what they're trying to tell us. Uh, that's, that's just good science fiction. What I particularly love about Deep Space Nine, and again, I'm enjoying this for the first time, is how complex their characters are. They're not just, um, you know, one-off tropes. Like, they are incredibly complex. You have, you know, Major Kira Norris coming in, and and she's, you know... um, a resistance fighter for for the Bajor resistance and and liberation front and then you know so she is all piss and vinegar when it comes to you know Bajoran rights and and liberation from the Cardassians and then you have you know um Commander Sisko who is one of my favorite characters of Trek already and I'm only in the second season like who is like between a rock and a hard place because he's got to be this go-between for the Federation and you hit the nail on the head he's not the authority figure that you're used to seeing in, in a Star Trek show so so he's trying to you know be the go-between and and be this um you know emissary between all of these people and keep everybody happy um and then you have my all-time favorite so far relationship between odo and and quark is just hilarious every episode they're going back and forth how much they can't stand each other how much they try to get over on each other is just fascinating to watch the character work on that show is probably some of the finest in all of star trek i don't think there's a single character that that doesn't fascinate on at least some level um i was always also really fond of the relationship between uh, Dr. Bashir and Miles O'Brien and how, how it develops over the course of the series. You know, two people who initially really didn't enjoy each other's company very much, turning out to be the best of friends like that uh, through just very solid character development it is one of my favorite things uh, about that show, actually. I just watched the episode where they played racquetball against each other. I love that one so much. And you're yeah, exactly fantastic. right. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, Dave, it would not be a, a profile on you and your interests if we didn't inject horror into it. So what do you have next? You know, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the pod. So there's something new for our listeners. Stephen King is my all-time favorite writer. I first encountered Uncle Steve while still in the womb. No joke. My father, looking to read to his unborn son, read pretty much any book on his shelf out loud, including Pet Cemetery. When I was about seven years old, I pulled the book off the shelf myself and read it, sneakily, of course, under my covers at night with a flashlight. And King has had me hooked ever since. You know, when things are going bad or I need to pick me up, I always return to Stephen King's novels. I know that sounds odd given his reputation for horror, but I've always enjoyed the genre, first of all. I also think, though, that the best of King is not necessarily how he scares the reader. It's the characters. He manages to paint such a vivid picture of his characters. They they spring from the page fully formed, real people in my mind's eye. It's the people more than the plots that ultimately stick with me when it comes to Stephen King. Now, King has a massive catalog of novels and short stories, and I'm so glad he's still writing. I recently had a blast going through his Mr. Mercedes trilogy. It was so, so good. And only King uh, could get, you know, the permission to try my patience as much as he did in the second 
uh, book of the trilogy, Finders Keepers, where a good three quarters of the book does not involve the main characters of the trilogy. And still it works because the characters he introduces in that second novel are so interesting that they could easily carry that novel by themselves. But there's one corner of King's writing that I specifically return to periodically, and that's the Dark Tower. King's Tower is my Lord of the Rings, my Game of Thrones. It may be my favorite cycle of books ever, warts and all. It's epic, sweeping, horrifying, inventive, twisted, and represents the very best of Stephen King. It's this this odd and endearing marriage of spaghetti westerns with high fantasy. And it really is something deeply special. And it was heartbreaking when the movie adaptation that came out a while back was completely unable to live up to how awesome the book series is. So yeah, when I need an old favor to lift my spirits, I I just go visit Uncle Steve. So so Stephen King, um, amongst like the guests and interviewees that we've had here, uh, is probably one of the most referenced writers alongside Neil Gaiman. And um, I'm ashamed to say I've read next to nothing of his work. I think I read one novel about um, like how cell phones were killing people. This was in like 2005, 2006. Does that sound familiar at all? That would be Cell. Yes, I've yes. read that one. It's his yeah. take on uh, zombies. Yeah. So... Um, Outright horror still isn't exactly of my vibe. I'm proud of the progress I made through the month of October. But um, I've always been fascinated and intrigued by the Dark Tower. Um, Would you say that that would be okay territory if I'm not looking for outright horror or any other titles by him? Because I'm compelled to read his work based on all of these recommendations I'm getting. But, you know, I don't know that it is what I, you know, would be interested in reading. And so, so the tower is, is, is a, that's a complex topic really. Um, and one that, uh, I could probably spend a whole episode talking about easily. Um, the thing about the dark tower, first of all, is that there are horror elements present. There are things that happen in, in the series that are quite horrifying. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's primarily a horror series. Um, would it be the place where I recommend people start when it comes to King? I'm not sure. One of the things that makes the Dark Tower so rewarding, particularly for longtime fans of Stephen King, is that it kind of puts forth this theory that a, a, a sort of a, a very comic book sort of theory of a multiverse. So Stephen King essentially has his own multiverse, and it all hinges on this tower as, as the centerpiece. And so in the world of Dark Tower, every story that Stephen King has written in some way, shape, or form exists. At one point, the characters even cross through the world of the stand, ravaged by a pandemic. Um, a character uh, later on from uh, Salem's Lot actually shows up. So I, I don't know if it's the best starting point necessarily. I think the the series itself is rewarding, but I think there's a whole metatextual layer to the series that is difficult to grasp if, if you're not at least rudimentarily familiar with some of Stephen King's other works. And I, I will say, I have major respect for your dad, uh, you know, reading to you while you were still in the womb and as a young child, because I did the exact same thing to my children, except I was reading Alexander Dumas and like romanticist literature and swashbuckling adventures. But but all, all the same, I, um, you know, even some Harry Potter. So I can, I, I respect 
uh, dad to dad uh, so much. Yeah, and I'm and I'm completely uh, indebted to him for that because I think you know the the amount of emphasis that was put on reading and storytelling in in my family uh, throughout my childhood, I think has in large part shaped the person I am today. My fascination with with comic books, with stories, uh, with, with novels, with movies, with pop culture in general. I, I just, I think my obsession with nerdy things stems from a deep and abiding love of story uh, above all else. I just, I just am always looking for a good story, no matter what the medium is. All right, that brings us to your final guilty pleasure. Chris, what do you have for us? So I know I just got done talking about how much I prefer Star Trek over Star Wars, but Dave, the one exception for me is The Mandalorian. I know that it's the hot ticket, the hot topic right now when it comes to you know streaming shows, but I, I just love it so much. Um, it does run the risk of being a little too fan servicey, but it's so well done that I don't care. Like it's pitch perfect casting, even and especially from the guest stars, uh, you know, even people who have like just one episode appearances um, are, are amazing. Timothy Oliphant was incredible in season two. Um, I I can't remember her name, but uh, the auto mechanic um, from season one, she made a, a season two appearance as well. She's just magnificent. Um, you know, even, even the side, you know, characters are just awesome. Um, and, and when you have perfect casting like that and, and really quality work, it just lends itself to a high quality product. Um, it capitalizes on the Mandalorian mystique, that Boba Fett esque mystique that star Wars really didn't capitalize on for years outside of the animated series. I mean, you had Boba Fett, who is probably one of the most popular star Wars characters and he was killed um, off so quickly. Uh, and even in the original trilogy, which we love so much and we love to, to, you know, praise all the time. Um, and we've talked about this before, um, I think in nerd news stories, but when you have talented creators like Dave Filoni and John Favreau, and they have a vision, they're talented creators with a vision, you just let them cook. And, you know, Disney and Lucasfilm have done exactly that. They let them just do what they do best and they have reaped the rewards. It's probably the hottest show on TV right now. Everybody is tuning in first thing Friday morning to watch this show. Um, and, and also the fascinating thing to watch has been this return to appointment viewing. It really builds incredible speculation from week to week and even more so between seasons like um, one of the hardest parts of quarantine was waiting for season two of the Mandalorian. Um, and spoiler alert, if you don't know his name yet, but Grogu is just the freaking best. I am unashamed of the cuteness factor. He's just the best watching the core development between him and Din Djarin Mando, um, has just been so captivating to watch. Um, um, I just love this show so much, and I'm unashamed. It's my guilty pleasure. Five o'clock Friday morning, I'm already watching the new episode of The Mandalorian. Yeah, you, you say everybody, but as it turns out, not exactly everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Uh, I like The Mandalorian a great deal. I, I'm not the guy to say much else here because I'm way behind on watching the show. I've watched season one and I've watched the first episode of season two, but finding time to watch The Mandalorian has been extremely challenging as of late. But I will say this, from what I've seen of the show, it's the best live action Star Wars in years. 
it somehow has that old school Star Wars feel that Disney and and even Lucas in the prequels struggled to recapture. It feels like the classic original trilogy era of Star Wars in a lot of ways. And and for that, I absolutely love it. Yeah, and, and what I love about it so much is it's unashamed for what it is. You know, you have... Um, you know, George Lucas going on record, it's, it's, it's a well-known fact of his influence from, um, you know, the Hidden Tower and Akira Kurosawa's work uh, of samurai films and, and also Westerns. And that is unashamedly, unmistakably influenced in this show. Like it is a John Favreau's space Western. Like it's so good. And it is, it completely accepts and embraces what it is and they just go to town and, and it's just awesome um season two get ready for it my friend um i'm sorry that i spoiled that little bit but i won't spoil anymore it's it's so much better even than season one um and i can't wait to get your reactions when when you're caught up i can't wait to get caught up (laughs) (laughs) all right dave you are going in uncharted territory for me what's going on with your third and final pick you know, when I was a kid, I used to think there was nothing cooler than dinosaurs. And and then my dad introduced me to Godzilla. Here's a giant atomic power fueled fire spitting dinosaur whose spine glows and who fights other monsters. I feel like I was genetically predisposed to just love Godzilla. I mean, what's not to love? Toho's first Godzilla movie is a pretty serious affair really an allegory for you know the, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan. And as an adult, I can appreciate that. But my heart, my heart does not want serious Godzilla. My heart rests with the guilty pleasure monster brawls of the 60s and onward. Today, I think the closest equivalent would be the Fast and the Furious movies, although I don't really enjoy those due to the lack of giant fire-breathing dinosaurs. But hey, here's what it comes down to. It's Godzilla. Things go boom. There's cheesy dialogue, some good laughs, and then a couple of giant monsters or more beat the snot out of each other. This isn't exactly highly sophisticated cinema, although it's always filmed with skill and conviction. So I adore Toho's Godzilla movie, specifically the Japanese originals. I recently purchased a Showa era collection from Criterion for more money than I am comfortable admitting publicly. <laughs> Having the Godzilla movies from 1957 to 1974 at my fingertips means I can enjoy this guilty pleasure anytime in Blu ray quality. So that's exactly what I do. I'm constantly going back to these movies. And even, you know, sometimes I will freely admit, although I prefer watching the Japanese original audio with subtitles, occasionally I will go to the very, very poorly done dubs just to get a chuckle out of the odd translations and the odd choices made uh, when, when trying to bring these movies to Western audiences. So one of the great comfort blankets for me my little safety blanket is watching a godzilla movie really from from any era as long as it's toho's original godzilla movies you know what dave um anytime i gotta be honest with you so i again i have not watched these films yet 
But anytime I see an old movie like this, I can't help but think of Mystery Science Theater 3000, which absolutely. is a rec- which is a recommendation that you gave to me years ago that I absolutely owe you so much for. Like the fact that I did not know about that show, like I'm so ashamed. So now I have to watch like every episode and I immediately think of the Reptilicus one on the the Netflix series, The Return. (laughs) (laughs) I I love it so much. And you're absolutely right. Like the dubs are so awful. Um, It's just like, that's a guilty pleasure in and of itself, just like how awful the dubs are. But I will say this, I will say that I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um, This may be the first time on the pod I'm saying it, but ladies and gents, if you're a nerd, you really just need to, to be thankful and appreciative of the country of Japan, its people, its creators, and its culture. Nerds owe so much to Japanese creators um, we wouldn't have so many of the things like I just said, Akira Kurosawa, like we probably wouldn't have Star Wars if if George Lucas hadn't seen those films back in the day. Um, the culture of Japan is just so there's such a mystique around it. It's such a coolness factor of Japan. I mean, like the Ninja Turtles are 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 so deeply steeped in Japanese culture. Um, you can see the fingerprints of its influence all throughout nerddom. So shout out to our Japanese brothers and sisters and nerds around the world. But I love uh, Japanese stuff. So I'm I'm definitely going to have to check these out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's funny because I, I used to have a, probably like a, a three foot Godzilla uh, sitting on one of my shelves. Um it, it was my pride and joy, this really ginormous Godzilla toy. And, and just very recently, uh, I finally got to replace it. Maybe not with one quite the same size, but uh, I have Godzilla back on my shelf in my office uh, where I'm sitting right now to, to record this pod. He's watching over everything. And that's, <laughs> and that's exactly how I like it. Yes. I love it. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it for our guilty pleasures. What are some of yours? Hit us up on social media and let us know. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and on Facebook at TheNerdByWord. After another quick break, we'll be back with some nerd commendations. Don't go anywhere. Seriously, we're watching. Stay. We'll be right back. (laughs) Just like Godzilla. All right, and we're back. It's time for some nerd commendations. Let's go ahead and see what we recommend this week for some nerdy media. Chris, what are you bringing us this week? So I'm late to the game here. Um, I had to uh, cut off my subscription to CBS All Access for a couple of months to to pinch some pennies. But I, 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 I splurged a little bit um, to, to get through some more quarantine. And I watched Star Trek Picard. Um, I, I was also hesitant at starting this show because I've talked about this on, on, on the show before. I'm always leery of, um, you know, nostalgic revisitings or reboots or, or things where they're, they're getting the band back together because I, I've been burned too many times. Like um, uh, so many times they're not able to recapture that spark or that magic. Um, and there was some challenges with this show, but I did watch all um, 10 episodes within like a two or three day period. And I enjoyed it immensely. Um, you do have that initial challenge of Sir Patrick Stewart being an 80 year old lead in an action, you know, series. Um, 
but I but I overall I truly enjoyed it. You know, Jean Luc Picard is one of the seminal you know leaders in nerd culture. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a recent. Um, I'm a recent convert into Star Trek, the next generation, but there's so many nerds around the world grew up with, with Jean-Luc Picard as like a father figure of sorts. Um, and, you know, and, and he was exactly that here for, for me, I, I got, um, it made me really miss my grandfather. I, I need to call my grandfather because uh, of that, just like stern paternal figure who does not back down from what they believe to be right. And that's, Picard and in his essence, and they truly did were able to capture that with this series. But what I appreciated the most was his new crew. They're just awesome. Michelle Hurd as Rafi is a truly complex individual. She's got some serious demons, and and her backstory is quite complex and interesting. But you can't help but root for her. Um, my personal favorite character in all of Star Trek ever um, is Captain Cristobal Rios played by the unflappable Santiago Cabrera. If you've seen BBC's The Musketeers, he's Aramis. He's an instant favorite. I watch everything that he does. And he honestly, he was probably one of the main reasons that I tuned in and watched this. He's so freaking talented. Like he he's he's awesome. Um he does different accents. He's the captain of this ship, uh the La Sirena, and he he's of Chilean descent, but I believe he grew up in Spain. So he's you know traveled the world and he has this emergency medical hologram of himself, but there's like different ones. Like there's one for engineering, there's one for medical, and there's one that like does something else. But each one of these holograms of himself is played by Santiago Cabrera and it has a different accent and his accents are on point. He has a British accent for one. He has a Spanish accent for another. He has an Irish accent. And, you know, sometimes when you have characters doing accent work, it's a little hit or miss, but, but it's pretty great. And it's really, really fun. Um, there's also some great, you know, mystery surrounding his character and his backstory that was really fleshed out really well. Um, Issa Briones is, is, relatively young. She's only 21, I believe, but she's truly compelling um, in, in the kind of co-lead role uh, as so- Dr. Soji Asha. She's fantastic. Peyton List, if you recognize that name, nerds, that's because she was Lisa Snart on The Flash. She uh, returns here as a Romulan villain, and she's just menacing and fantastic um, with a British accent this time, though. Um, so that was cool. Um the the one nostalgic episode that really hit home for me and was really perfect and was not overdone was um, the episode with Will Riker and Deanna Troy and their family it was just amazing. I mean, Will Riker has retired from Starfleet and he's cooking wood fire pizzas in the woods. Like he lives in the woods and he cooks pizzas all day, like with like artisan ingredients. It's just perfect. Um, and their daughter was a revelation. Their daughter, Kestra Troy Riker, She's will call will calls her the wild girl of the woods. She's got like face paint. She's barefoot running around with a bow and arrow. Like it's just awesome. It's so endearing. And and she's just, she's just a delight. Um, and when it comes to star Trek, um, it, it's always best. The best star Trek is when it has an allegory or it has something to say and it's relevant. Um, and there's a synthetic band. The big, the big um, storyline of this is, uh, something went down and there's this synthetic ban on all synthetic life forms, you know, you know, with data and the, all of that. So that's pretty near and dear to Picard's heart. 
Um, so there's a synthetic ban on all synthetic life forms. And, and it's a huge allegory for like the Muslim ban and it's relevant and it has something to say. But overall, it was just a fun swashbuckling ride, even with an 80 year old lead. Who, who would have thunk it? You know, I've not seen this show yet. And although it's on my watch list, sure, um, I'm there mostly just for Patrick Stewart, the actor, who who is one of my all-time favorite actors. But I will freely admit one thing. Of all the Star Trek shows, my connection to The Next Generation is by far the weakest. I remember watching the original series and reruns as a kid and really loving it. The Next Generation kind of completely passed me by. I'm not quite sure how. But then Deep Space Nine launched and later Voyager, and I watched both of those shows religiously. I also later watched Enterprise from start to finish, and I'm currently watching Discovery. The Next Generation is literally the only Star Trek show that I've not seen every single episode of. I've seen some episodes, uh, usually the strongest stuff that comes highly recommended, or the weirdest stuff that you just have to see to believe. <laughs> there's 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 much to be said for um, Dr. Crusher's affinity for uh, specters, I would say. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just not as familiar with The Next Generation as I am with, with other Star Trek shows. And I feel like I kind of owe it to myself to, to really dive into The Next Generation. It seems like a stain almost on my geek credibility that I'm not as familiar with the next generation as I should be. So I might put a pin in watching Picard and kind of backing up and actually watching the next generation and getting a sense of the character and the show as it was before I try to dive into this semi-revival, if you will. I think, and, and that's, um, I think it was like last year, the year before I just binged all of it and, and season one had its growing pains. Um, but you know, exactly what I referenced before, the best thing that come out of TNG for me, number one, were the holodeck episodes. Absolutely. I love Lieutenant Barkley, which if you're a fan of the A-team, Dwight Schultz, um, Matt Murdock as Lieutenant Barkley is just amazing. So my favorite episodes are the holodeck episodes, but but then like the development of the cast together, watching them grow from seasons one through seven is just really fascinating, particularly with, with the data, um, uh, and, and everybody, because, you know, he's such a fish out of water, you know, being a synthetic life form, being an Android, um, is some of the best stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, intrigued to actually go back and really dive into it for a change. All right, Dave, you're double dipping in the horror too. What you got for us? I just want to talk about a movie that, uh, that literally just left theaters and showed up on, on video on demand. Long-time listeners of this podcast know that I love horror movies. Uh, particularly, I'm fond of the old slasher movies of the 80s. Uh, and a recent release plays around with some of these common horror tropes and turned out to be a really entertaining flick, and that's Freaky. So Freaky is a comedy horror film uh, directed by Christopher Landon from a screenplay he wrote with Michael Kennedy. It stars Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton in the lead roles. In the movie, which is basically a riff on Freaky Friday, a teenage girl accidentally switches bodies with a middle-aged male slasher serial killer, sort of in the vein of Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Now, don't let the comedy part fool you. Uh, This movie is a slasher flick, with the blood, gore, and inventive kills fans expect from the genre. Within the first five minutes, the killer strikes with a gruesome kill involving a wine bottle that made me double-take, and I've seen a lot of these movies. (laughs) 
The film really does shine in the performance of Vince Vaughn, who spends most of the movie playing a teenaged girl trapped in a man's body, uh, and Catherine Newton, who gets to creepily stalk her high school classmates as a slasher. Vaughn in particular is just very, very good here and a lot of fun to watch. I also really enjoyed the whole wolf in sheep's clothing aspect of the movie. Slashers are traditionally big hulking men that you see coming from a mile away. So seeing a teenage girl use her unassuming nature to get close to people and then take them out in gruesome ways was actually surprisingly a lot of fun to watch. It doesn't hurt the movie that in the great tradition of 80s slasher flicks, the vast majority of the victims in the film come across as legitimately unlikable characters. There's a certain amount of schadenfreude in seeing some of these characters, quote-unquote, get what they've got coming. Uh, there's particularly a scene with just a, a shop teacher who is absolutely atrocious to his students. And uh, it's quite a scene when he actually finally gets taken out. So yeah, Freaky expertly blends horror and comedy, is anchored by strong, fun performances, and, and generally just constitutes a really good time for horror fans. And I do not reg- uh, regret uh, checking this one out on Video On Demand. So this is hilarious to me, how, how perfectly the universe threw this uh, in my path. Um, this movie came on my radar because it showed up in my Twitter feed um based on like a glowing review by uh a guy i follow called his name is scott wampler you can find him on twitter at scott wampler bmd dave his uh, twitter bio he's the co-host of the king cast about you guessed it stephen king he's a co-host of the stephen king podcast and he absolutely just glowing reviewed this movie and then i saw this as your recommendation i was like that's very on brand for dave so uh, (laughs) i'm very interested to check this out um i I've seen like a lot of like uh, horror tinged, you know, films like this um, that look super interesting to me. So I'm definitely going to check this one out. Um, Vince Vaughn is one of my favorites. Uh, The breakup is still one of the best comedies I've ever watched. Um, I go to that dinner scene that that's another one of my guilty pleasures um, when it comes to comedy is going to that dinner table scene where his uh, brother-in-law makes him do acapella singing. It's just wonderful to revisit that (laughs) um, every time. So I'm definitely gonna have to check this one out. Yeah, it's 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 a really fun time. If you're willing to sit through the blood and gore, uh, I think there's a there's a lot of fun to be had with this movie. Well, That's it for another episode of the Nerd By Word podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a rating or review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're available everywhere podcasts can be found, including Apple, uh, Spotify, and of course, YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter at Nerd By Word or individually at That Nerd Chris and at That Nerd Dave. As always, we thank you for tuning in. We thank you so much for your support. Also, in our social media profiles, you can see a link tree um, link to all of those websites. So uh, you click on that one link and you pick the link after that that you want to go to. Do you want to go to our YouTube site? Do you want to go to our social media pages, our website, and whatever? So it's really, really easy to figure out how to navigate all that. Thanks so much for all that you do for us and stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>